Kam- Kamala Harris, I almost mispronounced her name because of bigotry, I guess, I don't know, was speaking about environmental and climate issues recently when she mentioned the need to, quote, reduce population. While this was a gaffe, it provided me with an excuse to dedicate this entire episode to the history of population control. From the eugenics movements of the 1940s through the 60s to China's one-child policy of the 80s and 90s to modern-day calls to save the planet, the authoritarian left has a long history of promoting this anti-human agenda. We're talking about this and more on episode 407 of the In the Tank podcast. Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Joining me today, I've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Despite that you're a little late on your finger guns, I'm still going to try to make it a good day. There you go. Uh, I'm doing great. You know, this has been a great um, month of sport in uh, Great Britain. Previous two weeks were Wimbledon. Today begins the British Open, or as they just call it, the Open over there. So it's really exciting. So I'm celebrating by... uh, Drinking with my British mug in my coffee. Oh, I guess I can forgive you. I don't know. It's not tea. It's coffee. So it's still pretty darn American. Yeah, Justin's shaking his head over there. Justin Haskins, director of the Socialism Research Center here at the Heartland Institute. Can you believe this guy? No. <laughs> no, no, I can't. No, I can't. I mean, I, I don't know, Jim. Why did we Why did we even have an American Revolutionary War yeah. if not to... Ignore everything that happens in the United Kingdom. That's the whole point. That That's is the whole point. point. Yeah. Jim's over there bending the knee the entire time, kissing the yeah, rings yeah. of King, what's his name? Charles? I don't even, see, I don't even know. I call oh, him Charlie. Charlie. We're, we're King on Chuck. King Whatever Chuck, that guy's yeah. name is. Does, is he playing golf? No, I don't. I don't. Yeah, his his fingers are too fat to grab a to grab <laughs> to grab a golf club. Although, did you did you see him uh, escorting Biden around? At the uh, with, with the guards and everything, and Biden was clearly lost. And he, I mean, it's Classic. hard to imagine that somebody could make uh, King Charles look like sprite and young and on top of it. But Joe <laughs> Biden has somehow found a way to make even that old guy seem, uh, I almost said a really bad word. You know what? Um, Joe Biden can make a corpse look lively. So I know. <laughs> it was. It was pretty incredible, yeah. Yeah, I mean, King Charles looked like a future employee at the month at a nursing home, the way he was uh, he leading him around like that. It was, you know, good for him. Yeah. Uh, folks, we got a benefit dinner coming up in September, oh, yeah. September 8th on a Friday here in the Chicagoland area. We have our 39th anniversary benefit dinner coming up featuring John Stossel, maybe a couple of other surprises there. Jim... What uh, what do you say? Any any news to break on on this uh, occasion coming up? Yeah, actually, we're uh, we're awarding the Heartland Liberty Prize to former state representative and uh, gubernatorial candidate here in Illinois, Jeannie Ives. She's been a um, she's come to a lot of Heartland events over the years. <clears throat> she's um, pretty much it's pretty hard to find 
uh, a good rock rib conservative in the state of Illinois. Uh, there are a few. <laughs> she's one of them. And she's uh, she's very freedom oriented. She's she's a real fighter. Uh, we're very proud to be able to to uh, honor her with the Heartland Liberty Prize. But uh, yeah, the early bird rate. So you can get a little bit of a discount on your ticket, even though it is a benefit dinner. It's we're a nonprofit organization It's intended to help us raise money. But you can save a little bit on your tickets if you get your tickets before July is out. The early bird rates end on August 1st. So just go to heartland.org for information or you can go to benefit.heartland.org. Either one of those will get you there. So I know a lot of uh, I know, I, we mentioned this last week, Donnie, that uh, some listeners or wa- viewers of our uh, YouTube podcast uh, came up and said and said, hey, so um, I'm definitely going to be there. Donnie's going to be there. Justin is not going to be there. He has a conflict, <laughs> so you won't be able to meet Justin, which outrageous. Still outrageous. come. Come anyway. Yeah. Andy will be there. In fact, a lot of the people from our um, Climate Change Roundtable show that we air at the same time, but on Fridays will also be there. So it's a great chance to yeah, one of our work the organization and to meet some uh, some great uh, people. One of our listeners, Mark, reached out to me via email after one of my radio appearances recently and said uh, how he heard me on the radio and that he bought a ticket to the benefit dinner. So we should be seeing him. Uh, but yes, join us. Come come track us down. Say hi. Uh, like unlike some of us, you know, we're not we don't consider ourselves celebrities. So, you know, feel free to come up to us and say hi. We I, won't be uh, won't be. I actually. Unlike I mean, I, w- I wasn't I wasn't going to bring this up during the show, but I, I did. I do have an, a sort of an exciting announcement. Okay. I am I am working on some kind of like holographic AI version of myself so that I can be everywhere all the time. Good. So once that's done, I I could be there. I could actually be at the event this year. <laughs> I mean, I won't physically be there myself personally, but my uploaded conscious into my AI yeah. Justin lookalike could be there. So you could be him potentially. We're still working on it. And Audio. You, that would be more impressive than meeting Justin Haskins. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Without uh, a doubt. Audio yeah. only listeners. If you're catching this show on a Friday or later, you can join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon central time where we are live streaming this on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and rumble. And you can join in the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comment on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. If you are an audio only listener, you can leave us a review on iTunes. It'd be greatly appreciated. And if you are watching us hitting that subscribe button, sharing this content, hitting the like button, or just leaving a comment underneath this video all helps break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. So uh, like I said at the onset of the podcast, this is going to be a bit of a history of population control, and we've got a lot to get to, a lot to get to. So uh, buckle up, because this probably is going to go along. It's probably going to go along, especially considering we have Justin on the podcast. And uh, even before we get to those topics, Justin... You uh, you did not join us last week because Justin co-authored the latest Glenn Beck book, Dark Future, Uncovering the Great Reset's Terrifying Next Phase, came out a week Tuesday, and a half ago, Tuesday, Tuesday, yeah, July, July 11th, 11th, where he was in Dallas for the launch of the book, did a number of interviews on the Blaze network of shows, plus a whole bunch of miscellaneous interviews as well. So first off, how dare you for big timing us? I know, I'm sorry. I told Second you I'm question. working on I'm working on the AI. Second I, I question. You, I'll be Second here question. every week. Second question. This is a hardball interview with Chris Matthews. Second question. Where's your loyalty? Uh, I think it's pretty obvious where my loyalty is, but um, I I think <laughs> third question. Third question. <laughs> that's, that's not an third answer. Question. Third question. What what gives you the right? 
A right to do what? I just want to like, for the record, let let the world know since I'm on hardball now with with, uh, Donald Kendall that um, Donnie was supposed to go on this exact same trip with me. And then at the last minute, he decided to bail on it. Not so that he could do the show. That's exactly the reason. But for other reasons entirely. It had nothing to do with that. And now right, he's harassing question. me. Fourth question. What do you have to say about the book? What do I have to say about the book? All right. Great topic. Great. Now let's move on to our the book is great. <laughs> yeah, I think the book is great. That's the wrong book. Pull up a pull up the other book, Andy. Oh my God. <laughs> so look, the, we, we've just uh, Glenn and I and, and Donnie. Yeah, exactly. And, and <laughs> pull up. There you the, go, yeah. Andy. I got there it, it for is. you. I got Dark it Future. You. This is a book that... Uh, that Donnie and I have been working with Glenn Beck on for over a year. Essentially what dark future is about is it's, it's part of, it's part of what we're calling the great reset series of books. The last book we put together was about the great reset came out in January of uh, last year, 2022. This book is the sequel to that. What we do in this book is something that no other book on the market has really ever done. We were taking um, we're taking the, the, the plans that Davos have put into place, the Biden administration and others to alter emerging technology. And we're uncovering all the aspects of that. Um, it's incredible how much information is out there on e- ESG and emerging technology on, uh, various other social credit scoring schemes and how those things are being used to alter artificial intelligence, how they're being used to, um, uh, or how quantum computing, for example, and supercomputers are now being used. Advanced algorithms are being used to control um, society, to transform society. Uh, and so we, we dive into a whole bunch of topics related to that, to emerging technologies and how they're being used and how elites plan on using them in the future as well. Um, massive amount of research went into this. There's nearly 1,200 citations in this book. Uh, it is essentially a, a book and a half compared to the books that we've done in the past with Glenn. Um, and I just, I truly do not believe that there is another book out there like this one. So if you want to know what the future could look like, and you want to know how to stop Davos from controlling your future, stop the Biden administration from controlling your future, uh, to how, how we can make artificial intelligence and Um, And quantum computing and the metaverse and all these other emerging technologies work for us rather than be used as tools to control people, um, then this book is is something that you should spend some time looking at. Uh, The uh, digital book is now available on Amazon. You can get the print version, of course. And Glenn recorded an, an awesome audio version of the book, which isn't out yet, but it will be out in the next week or two. So, um, and if you had <clears throat> to choose between the three, I think I would, I would go for, uh, the print copy or the, the audio version. The audio version I think is, is, is so, so good. Very few people have heard it. Uh, but Glenn does an amazing job, uh, reading the book ad libbing. He puts in a bunch of additional information into the book. So it's, uh, it's really cool. Came out uh, last week as Donnie pointed out, and, uh, we just got the sales numbers back. It's the number two nonfiction book in America uh, for the first week that it came out, which was really great. It's number three overall if you include fiction. Uh, so we just uh, we just barely beat out James Patterson's new book, so he can go suck it. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, um, the only the only nonfiction book that beat us, and I don't know that anybody in this audience will know what this is, but it, it was it's a uh, an official sort of like biography or autobiography. I'm not exactly sure how to characterize it about BTS. Do you know what that is? Do either of you guys know what BTS is? Oh, no. no? Jim, Jim's shaking his head like he doesn't know, but he Jim owns all know. the K-pop. Jim knows. Oh, is that yeah. a K-pop group? I was it's, just going to guess. Yeah. It, is the, it is the K-pop uh, band, oh, apparently. Yeah, and he, he doesn't uh, want to hold up his other coffee mug because it's it's all. <laughs> he doesn't K-pop. want to hold up the BTS. <laughs> I heart BTS coffee mug. And uh, so um, they released like their first book of all time. And also uh, co-written by Justin, I might add. Yeah, yeah. And I'm really proud of that one too, by the way. Um, but uh yeah, Kate, so Kate, we can't there's no way we can beat the K-pop, you know, freight train. It's just not possible. No one no, can beat right. it. Yeah, we can stop the dark future. We can't no, stop yeah, K-pop. One <laughs> of those is just an insurmountable stop. challenge. Yeah, so it was so anyway, it was a real it was, you know, it's really exciting. Obviously, did a lot of media interviews last week. I I actually recorded a couple of sit-down uh, an, an interview with Ali Stuckey yesterday that's going to be broken up into two parts. The first part I think they posted yesterday and they're going to post the other one either today or tomorrow. Um, where we go into a lot of detail about ESG and the great reset and dark future and all of that. So, um tons of stuff on this on this book donnie and i will probably do uh another video sort of exclusively on the topic um and uh i think we did we we did do a video already about the book on um on stopping socialism tv if you just go to the stopping socialism tv youtube channel and you scroll down to the justin and donald saves america playlist there's a video there about the book but um, we'll be hitting these topics in more, depth. More important, I need to answer Bill's question. What is yeah. K-pop? Is a Korean, oh my God. Korean pop band that uh, yes. it's like, you know, the Backstreet Boys, but of Korea. Yes, it is basically like, and this is why Asia, this is why Asia is behind. This is why they're not number one yeah, and why we're still number the one. They're just, <laughs> they're just reaching like peak Backstreet Boys in sync. You know, we were there 20 years ago. Yeah, They're just right. reaching it now. They're very excited about K-pop still over there for some reason. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Andy, you should pull up a K-pop. We should no, get some no, no, K-pop. No. Let's move on. The... Let's move on. This is we got a lot to talk about here, man. Show. We're already going to go super long. So uh, I, I just got one question about the book, though, Justin. All right, so do you expect the New York Times to um, play with the numbers and screw you guys oh, out they, of being the New yeah. York Times bestseller? Yeah, that, thanks, for, thanks for mentioning that. So w- the New York Times list came out last night. Um, we were su- we should have been number two uh, to the K-pop <laughs> book. Uh, we ended up being number 12 on the list, um, which is incredible. Because last time we released a book, The Great Reset, that should have been number one. And they put us at number 12. Yeah, because they want to keep us out of the top 10. They want to keep us out of the top 10. But putting it at number 11 would be too obvious. So they just had to slide it back one more. And they can't can't take the number one or number two book in the country and not even have it on the list. So they, they put us on the list. They put us toward the very end, and twelve is clearly the slot that they use for people they don't like, <laughs> right? That have you know successful books. That's so we're we're back in number twelve. So but that's you can where still we're say at. you're a New York Times bestselling. Of course, of yes, course. we can still say that we're a New York Times bestselling book. Although I'm beginning to think I don't know why 
we, we need to, we need to, I mean, I'm going to, I want to devote a whole episode to that someday, just bashing the New York times, but we should stop using that list. There are other mm. lists that are based on real sales that yeah, are not my as list, My list puts it at number one. So yeah, I know we should do your list. <laughs> I think that's what All we right. should do. Your, yeah, your book's been the number one political too. book since the minute it, it dropped on Amazon. Number one, it still is now. I mean, to have that sustaining for this long is actually pretty impressive. So yeah, go get yeah. it. All right, let's let's get to our main topic here. We're seven minutes, seventeen minutes in. So our president and our vice president are not the most linguistically gifted people in the world. In fact, when it comes to Joe Biden, you're lucky if you can understand half of what he says at any given moment. But sometimes their gaffes can make you cringe. Sometimes they can make you laugh, and sometimes they can make you say, "Wait, what?" And that's the case with the most recent clip uh, from Kamala Harris, our vice president. Like I had said, she was talking about environmental and climate issues facing our country, where she had this to say. So let's go ahead and play clip number one. When we invest in clean energy and electric vehicles and reduce population, more of our children can breathe clean air and drink clean water. So let's just... uh address this right off the top um we are all in agreement that this is a gaffe correct i mean clearly she meant to say reduce pollution and not population that that's a given right no, no one's gonna in, okay. in in fact the white the white house actually showed the transcript they had the transcript on their website yeah. and it, it put in that she said population and it put a line through it and then put the word pollution in brackets after it. So they acknowledged she actually they didn't try to completely erase it from history, but they did uh, make the correction. So obviously oh, well, she meant to say pollution. There it is. Yeah, I mean, it was a bit troubling to me that the crowd still reacted yeah. with thunderous yeah. cheers. <laughs> Great uh, you would think it would be met with at least like a <laughs> muted response. You know? People so, like, what? Yeah, yeah, like, uh, no. Yeah, I agree. Wine. I actually I actually think in a way that is the most disturbing part of all of it. Uh, I was thinking that same exact thing. It right. was like, why are they all cheering this? They don't know that that was a gaffe. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, I don't know. Yeah, like, is this really a new weird. policy from the administration? <laughs> like, uh, well, it better cheer because that's what we <laughs> always do, right? So, uh, so, so after seeing this, my first thought was, could you imagine if the shoe was on the other foot? Uh, you know, some Republican is out there talking about reducing unemployment it says we've got to reduce black unemployment and we've got to reduce women unemployment and we've got to reduce gay marriages and like you know, everyone starts cheering or something first off you would never hear the end of it that republicans career would probably be over and the crowd cheering on that statement would be held as proof that republicans actually want uh you know that support that that position yeah. but you know when it's kamala harris well, yeah, I'll just kind of laugh and move on. So, uh, Jim, what are your thoughts on this? Just a silly gaffe, Freudian slip, something else? Uh, I, I see uh, Sterling Burnett, who's uh, in the chat today, uh, said that it was a Freudian slip. He doesn't believe that it was just a gaffe. I mean, it was obviously a gaffe. It actually reminds I mean, <laughs> don't even, I mean, talk about doing a whole show. We can do a whole show on media bias and how broken and uh, stupid our media is, how your average reporter. Um, is is really not very intelligent at all. Doesn't know any really anything about anything. Um, but you know, after enduring the coverage that we had of Donald Trump uh, for for five years, because it was before actually, let's call it six years, because it was the year before he was president. And then after he was president, they're still covering him all the time instead of the actual president of the United States, Joe Biden. But as you were t setting up that uh, my comment here, 
Donnie, I was remembering um, talking about gaffes. I believe this is pretty close to verbatim. Uh, Joe Biden said, um, poor kids can do just as good in school as white kids. <laughs> With the assumption, of course, that everybody, every African-American is, is poor and lives in the ghetto and all that kind of stuff. You know, if Donald Trump says that he is he's a racist, he's terrible. But, you know, Joe Biden actually has a pretty racist uh, record in his 120 years in public life. So, you know, but he does. He's never called out on it. And so if Donald Trump, for instance, or Sarah Palin or, uh, you know, Mike Pence or anybody in, in a Republican administration had said something like this, even though it was obviously a gaffe, it would have been all over the news for days. But I do think it is a bit. I think there is a Freudian slip element to this, um, not necessarily because Kamala Harris said it. I don't know if her brain works well enough to have some subliminal message slip out <laughs> of her mouth. But uh, I do think a lot of the people that advocate for the policies that this administration is pushing forward, especially when it comes to climate, does want population control, does, and we were going to show some examples of that right here, want fewer people on the planet, that they consider humans a plague upon the earth um, and want fewer of us. So it's part of the ideology that Kamala Harris represents. Yeah, she probably just left a closed-door meeting where they were talking about it, and it just was stuck in her head. But uh, Justin, I, I want to get into, uh, basically, I'm breaking this episode up into three main parts. Uh, and I mentioned those parts at the top end of the podcast, the first one being the eugenics movement, the second being overpopulation scares and the China one-child policy, and then the modern-day environmentalist calls for protecting the planet and all of that. But before I get into the first section, do you have any further comments on Kamala Harris's little slip of the tongue there? Uh, yeah, so just, uh, you know, I agree with everything that, that Jim said about that. I think that's all 100% accurate. I just want to, like, and I know this is obvious, but I just want to reiterate the fact that... Um, this has got to be the worst vice president of all time. <laughs> I mean, we can do a whole episode on this to too. <laughs> she has to be. She is, is so embarrassing. And this, in this kind of situation, you you could say, well, you know, she didn't. You know, she was just it just slipped out of her mouth, and you know that happens to people who speak all the time, and that's true. I am very uh, uh, aware that that's something that happens. It's happened to me. It happens to a lot of people when they're in front of a camera, they're in front of a microphone, they say things they don't mean, and whatever. But she is like, she does it all the time. And she does it in the dumbest and most egregious possible way. Like, it's not as though she slips up and says something, um, you know, that kind of sounds like pollution, but it's like popcorn. You know, it's something just like dumb. No, it has to be something that actually makes sense in the context of what she's saying, but is like the worst possible thing anyone could say, right? Like she's just the worst vice president of all time. Um, I wish we, cause I, I don't, I listened to the show last week when I wasn't on, but I can't remember. You guys didn't do the, did you do the Kamala Harris AI we, we talked about it, but I forgot to actually oh play my the gosh. clip. I know. At some point next week or something, we should just play the clip just for the sake of playing it, where she starts off her speech about explaining what AI is by telling us that, of course, it's two letters, you know, AI. And it's <laughs> like, yeah, we know that. And it stands for artificial <laughs> intelligence. And this is when we teach machines. It's machines are learning. And it's just like, you're the worst you're the worst spokesperson i've ever seen for anything of all time i, I, I figured out why she talks to everybody like they're a five-year-old 
because that's pretty much all she can comprehend is five-year-old expla- it's, explanations. It's, I've never seen, this is not a person who was like plucked off the street and made vice president. Like she was a senator before this. She was a U.S. senator too. Like how has this person made it so far in, in life? It is just. Well, we won't get into that. <laughs> oh <laughs> my God. Marjorie, I mean, it is Marjorie Taylor Greene can show up. Uh, she's one. Images she is, of she is no, she, she, one. She can show images of how Kamala Harris got her. Joe, jo, but we have the oldest, most incompetent president, uh, probably ever, and we have the most incompetent vice president of all time, who is one. You know, Joe Biden, banana peel on the ground, slips and falls and dies, moment away from Kamala Harris being president of the United States. Like that's. That's where we're at right now. Joe Biden picks fight, picks a fight with like the wrong person, you know, and, and, and dies in the fight from like a heart attack or something or breathes too heavy or something like that. And we've got Kamala Harris as president. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's like, this is insane. I just, anyway, that's, Uh, I mean, some people in the chat have already figured it out. They've already answered your question, Justin. But uh, regardless of the reason of the slip of the tongue, uh, I'm using this as a justification to dedicate the entire episode to the history of population control, or at least some of the movement's lowlights. So let's get into it. Uh, Like I said, first chunk that I want to get into, 1940s and 50s and 60s eugenics movements. So let's start there. So the inspiration for the eugenics movement of that era stems back to good old Charles Darwin. So Charles Darwin was most known for his book, Origin of Species, which is where all of the evolution, you know, uh, science, whatever comes from. But he's also the author of the book, The Descent of Man. So Darwin outlines how history of human species was one of survival of the fittest, just like this theory of evolution. This resulted in an evolution of the human species into the smart, strong, and generally capable form that we more or less see today. However, uh, what we do with wealth creation and and compassion in our society, uh, basically, he argues, is taking us in the opposite direction. So in his book, he wrote, With savages, the weak in body and mind were soon eliminated. And those that survive commonly exhibit a vigorous state of health. We civilized men, on the other hand, do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile and maimed and the sick. We institute poor laws and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of everyone to their last moment. So this worldview maintains that we as a society are essentially... Uh, rewarding the least fit among us, you know, with our blood, sweat and national treasure and all of that, while punishing the most fit by taxing them or forcing them to help out or all that type of stuff. So basically, it would be the opposite of what the evolutionary process have gotten us to this point, hence the descent of man. So this line of thought spawned an entire movement of Western progressive that seek to reverse this trend. So Margaret Sanger, she's the founder of Planned Parenthood, talked about how, quote, the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the over-fertility of the mentally and physically defective. So this eventually spawned the American Eugenics Society that hosted talks and events and conferences, all promoting eugenics. 
The organization described eugenics, quote, as the study of improving the genetic composition of humans through controlled reproductive or different races and classes of people. So other people that dabbled in the ideas of eugenics included Henry Ford, Alexander Graham Bell, John Harvey Kellogg, even John D. Rockefeller and Theodore Roosevelt had kind of gotten into this a little bit because this was just kind of seen as the science of the time, right? So, you know, just following the science, this is an academic venture. Surely that there's some, you know, things that we can do to help the state of humankind if we just follow the science. So, uh, you know, we just want to make sure that man continues to progress by doing all this eugenic stuff. So these ideas resulted in some pretty wild outcomes uh, from forced sterilization practices in some states and countries. According to a research paper published in the National Library of Medicine, in the first three decades of the 20th century, 60,000 people were sterilized in America alone. Hitler was inspired by some of these early ideas. Nazi eugenicists approved at least 400,000 forced sterilizations in less than a decade. And this also fomented much racial discrimination. The idea that uh, the superiority or inferiority of certain races was part and parcel with the eugenics movement. So, Justin, I think there is a pretty decent section in the Dark Future uh, book about the Western eugenics movement. What are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I, I think that um, I think you I think you nailed it. I mean, I think that on the on the left and amongst elites, not necessarily even just on the left, but uh, elites in general, this was viewed in the 1800s and the early 1900s as just sort of like common sense for the educated people of mm -hmm. society. This was taught everywhere in every university. This was trust the science. They literally were putting people in um, putting people in cages, like at the World's Fair. There's a very famous story. I think it may have been at one of the Chicago World's Fairs where they they literally had a, a pygmy uh, from Africa in a cage as as sort of like proof of evolution. Like this is an early form of humanity when in reality, I mean, obviously that's not it was horrible what they did to the human rights violation for sure. But like this is something that had existed for a long time on the left and people who are who have been lionized uh, historically and still treated as as though they are heroes from that era, from that progressive era. Everyone has just swept under the rug how they were horrific racists and in and, and, and um, you know, in favor of eugenics. And in some cases, they supported openly racist organizations like the KKK and other things. And we've just all excluded that from our history books, from the national conversation. We have no problem with canceling, you know, people like Thomas Jefferson, who lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And in the moment in which he lived was one of the most progressive purse people in terms of civil liberties that had, you know, of his, of his day who actually wrote in the first draft of the declaration of independence that he wanted that, that slavery was wrong and they took it out because they were afraid of offending certain other people. We're fine with canceling him, but Franklin Roosevelt, who was a racist and we know that for a fact, Woodrow Wilson and a horrible racist, um, who screened Birth of a Nation at the White House, which was a horrific racist film glorifying the KKK. I mean, these people, they are all heroes. You mentioned uh, Charles Darwin 
Um, I thought that was uh, your, your that quote that you have from Charles Darwin is is particularly incredible. Um, but the origin of species, the full title of that book, um, included something about favored races as well. The, it was the yeah, it was on the origin of species by means of natural selection. That's the science part, or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. That's the full name of that title, and we tell kids that about that book all the time, but they never read the whole title. They cut it off early because they don't want to know <laughs> about the rest of the title. So this stream of thought existed and was becoming increasingly more popular in the progressive left all the way up until you get to Nazis. Okay. So then Hitler comes along, as you pointed out, and starts taking these ideas that were popular amongst elites all over Europe and in the United States. And he, and he starts mass murdering Jews. Right. And that from that point forward all of a sudden they they had to be they they couldn't lie, they couldn't talk about these topics in the same way that they had oh, before yeah. because everybody knew that was really bad and they wanted to distance themselves from that right and so then they got a lot more they were very crafty about the way they talked about these things but on the left and this is just a fact people don't it's uncomfortable and i get it but on the left there maintained a stream of extremely racist uh, and eugenics and that kind of thing for quite a while. I mean, Lyndon Johnson, they've got tapes of him saying horrifically racist, terrible things. He's one of the worst people who's ever been president in terms of just an individual person. He was a horrible, horrible person. And that kind of idea lasted for a very long time on the left and to varying degrees has always been there. There has always been a sort of anti-human um, uh, agenda there. There's always been a, uh, a racism that has existed throughout that part of it. And I wish I'm not saying everyone who's on the left or everyone who's a Democrat or anything like that is, is a racist or a bigot or anything like that. But amongst the elites, that has been a well-documented fact for a long, 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 long time. And you can trace it back to the, you know, 1800s all the way up uh, until basically today, I would argue to varying degrees. So it's very, very disturbing, but it's something that people need to understand because it is in the backdrop of all of these comments. So when so that, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, Sterling and other people are thinking when they, when they hear Kamala Harris, get up there and say, well, uh, you know, she slips in, we have to reduce population. And, and I think what a lot of people say is, well, yeah, that idea has that kind of thing has been there for a long time. And so it probably is in the back of her mind rattling around somewhere, you know? And, yeah, I, and I think that's a legitimate thing to ask and wonder about. Right, yeah. And I don't want to get onto a, a huge tangent about this, but this also kind of relates. I mean, we, we talked about the, the Nazis with this idea as well, but it also relates to a whole host of different authoritarian governments from the Soviet Union to North Korea to mm -hmm. Cambodia and all these different... Uh, regimes that had this plan of crafting the model citizen. This idea of kind of social engineering has been a thing amongst the elites of whatever corner of the uh, of the globe that you want to look at for a long time. This was just a nice, prettied up, sciencey version of it. Uh, Jim, before I move on to the next kind of main topic part of this, what do you have to say about all this eugenic stuff? Yeah, well, actually, congrats to Justin. He said, I was taking some notes as uh, before he started speaking, and he just stole all my notes pretty much because <laughs> I was going to mention, you know, well, I, I think it's important to note that for, for basically more for more than 100 years, 
every dehumanizing idea or political philosophy or system or science, dehumanizing science, have all originated on the left with people who call themselves then and call themselves now progressives. And uh, I was going to mention Woodrow Wilson, who's probably the least recognized worst president that, that America has ever had. You know, he was an intellectual. He was from the South. Pardon me. Uh, you know, an intellectual, but a progressive Democrat. But he was a virulent racist and eugenicist. Uh, you know, and he was really one of the things that marked his presidency, that he was upset that the Constitution kept getting in the way of he and other experts who, by some kind of divine intellectual right, or, or maybe some just kind of, they, they had power and they, they presented themselves as being smarter than, than the average American or average human. And certainly anybody who isn't white, they're way smarter than those people. And so they just took upon themselves as progressives the, um, the, 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 the burden, really, you know, the burden to bring humanity forward. And to do that, we're going to have to get rid of those humans that are not, uh, you know, very useful to society in the way they saw it. And, you know, I don't want to have like, what is it called? Uh, Hitlerian uh, ad absurdium or whatever, arguing whenever you bring up Hitler, you lose the argument. Um, but I, you oh, know, that it, hasn't been the case for like 10 years, Jim. So it, throw it around like oh, willy nilly, okay. like everyone else on the internet. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but yeah, but when, when, when Justin was bringing that up, you know, uh, I was thinking to myself, I couldn't get the thought out of my head. Hitler was probably like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm just doing what you guys told me. This is what you guys wanted. Now you're mad. <laughs> I mean, you guys have been promoting this for decades that we have to get rid of the, you know, the, the lower uh, races and all of that stuff. I mean, again, the, the subtitle that is never, ever mentioned of uh, Charles Darwin's book. Um, and if you're, if you don't believe everything, or if you don't actually, if you don't actively promote everything in, um, in Charles Darwin's uh, Origin of Species book, you are um, an imbecile. You're a moron. You're an ideologue. You're terrible. But um, I would be okay with that as long as everybody read the second part, the, uh, the subtitle of that book to everybody else. Because again, we'd never get, a, get away from that. But it's this, it's this mentality, and it's been around for a century. If, you are, if you're a conservative, if you're a libertarian, if you're a freedom-oriented person, um, you, tend to, you tend to be, frankly, you, you're more likely, I should say, to be a person of faith, somebody who, who's a devout Jew, a devout Muslim. You're seeing those in Michigan right now in the, in the pushback against um, the indoctrination of their children in public schools, or you're a conservative Christian, um, as like the cliche goes. But you believe in something larger than yourself. You, you believe that there's a soul. You believe that uh, there's a destiny for that soul based on how you act here on Earth. Um, progressives, for the most part, um, you know, again, these are generalizations, but they're, they're you know, uh, stereotypes because they're true. If you're a progressive, you're godless. You're an atheist. Or at the very most, you're an agnostic. Or maybe you're a um, you're spiritualist, you know, but you don't really believe in the sanctity of the individual as created in God's image, and you are here for a purpose, you're progressive, you don't believe that stuff. So it's very easy to just start thinking about, um, you know, eliminating millions or billions of people because you think that they're not necessary, because you don't think they have any value. Um, I, what was it, the quote from Stalin that uh, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic? I mean, that's an attitude that's on the left. And so they had this idea that we can perfect humanity. Humans can perfect humanity um, as, as, a, as a species moving forward. Conservatives don't believe that. They believe actually in the fallibility of man, that men, you know, humans are sinners. If you're, if you're, if you're a believer, you, you, know, you, you know that you sin every day, but you have to try to not, and you pray 
to be a better person to, and to not sin. But, you know, from perfecting humanity to the Soviet man was, you know, we're going to create a, uh, you know, the same thing with Hitler. We're going to create um, this Aryan race that's perfected. We're going to perfect humanity. Um, it's not just a, it's a ridiculous and it's its own cult, really, but it's evil. And if you think that, you know, your job as an intellectual, you're self-appointed or, or you just happen to have temporary power and it's you're going to be your job now to perfect humanity. That's that's evil. That's an evil mindset. And it is it is persistent. And you would have thought we would have gotten over this by now, but it's been more than 100 years. And today, the modern and I have to say the environmental left, the progressives on the environmental left, they're making um, you just look for look at surveys of Generation Z and um and millennials, for the most part, they've been convinced that they would be killing the planet. It would be a bad thing to have more than one child, and even to have that child, oh, we'll get to that. They feel guilty about that. So it's 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 this sick, sick mindset, and it's not it's never going away. And in some ways, as Justin said, you know, uh, it, it may be in some ways worse than ever. Yeah, there, there's kind of a macro theme to all of the points that I'm going to get to. That is this idea of uh, people in society being an asset or a liability. So throughout most of time, at least since the dawn of the agricultural revolution, uh, populations, kingdoms, civilizations, empires, they wanted to grow their populations because each additional person that's paying taxes to the king or whatever is seen as an asset. They could be, uh, you know, again, paying taxes, working the fields to grow more food for the, the population, uh, you know, manning the walls as a, as a soldier or something like that, trying to repel any potential foreign invader or anything like that. So generally speaking, people were seen as assets. And then at some point at post-industrial revolution, there's starting to be a twist or, or a, a, a pivot on that where people are being seen as liabilities. And that's shown in that Charles Darwin quote when he's talking about the people that aren't uh, mentally or physically able that need to be taken care of. He basically talks about how they're like a drain on society and they need to be taken care of. And then all of this eugenics talk is, uh, is basically to try to weed those people out. And to kind of get rid of all of those people in one way or another. But you see that same type of idea of, of, of each additional person being a liability when we get into this next phase of everything, which is uh, kind of the environmental movement or the idea of overpopulation. So that brings us to the 70s and 80s and China's one child policy. So in 1968, a then little-known Stanford University etymologist named Paul Ehrlich wrote a book titled The Population Bomb. It wasn't super popular right away, but it eventually went viral, selling millions of copies and turning Ehrlich into a celebrity of the time. The book became uh, one of the most influential books of the 20th century. Population Bomb painted an extremely bleak picture for humanity, one in which, quote, hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death due to lack of food. The book is filled with graphic depictions of potential consequences of overpopulation, famine, pollution, uh, social and ecological collapse. Ehrlich argued that immediate and drastic actions were needed to address the population crisis. He advocated for the implementation of various population control measures, including family planning programs, contraception promotion, and incentives to limit family size. 
The message of the book spread across the globe. International organizations started parroting these warnings. International Planned Parenthood Federation, the Population Council, the World Bank, even the United Nations all got in the business of advocating for policies to reduce fertility rates. So countries around the world began initiating policies to curb population growth. A reading from one of the articles that I have in the show notes, it says in Egypt, uh, uh, Tunisia, Pakistan, South Korea, and Taiwan, health worker salaries were, in a system that invited abuse, dictated by the number of IUDs they inserted into women. In the Philippines, birth control pills were literally pitched out of helicopters hovering over remote villages. Millions of people were sterilized, often coercively, sometimes illegally, frequently in unsafe conditions in Mexico, Bolivia, Peru, Indonesia, and Bangladesh. In India, certain welfare programs required sterilization for eligibility. And all of this culminated in what would be the worst application of this rhetoric, China's one-child policy. But before I get into the specifics of China's one-child policy, uh, Justin, thoughts on Paul Ehrlich, his book, and the overpopulation fears that spread across the world? I think it's one of those things that I wish everybody uh, knew about because of how important it is for understanding why people on the right who ha who uh, who have studied these issues don't just assume that whatever the so-called scientific establishment or whatever whatever says is true is automatically true. The whole like well, trust the science, trust the consensus, believe whatever they say. It's like if we had done that in those days, right? Full blown, because a lot of some people did, some countries did take that seriously, right? Think of think of all of the horrible things that would have happened, you know? And Paul Ehrlich was was never he was never like thrown out of the establishment as some sort of uh, you know, crackpot who got it wrong and therefore we should never listen to him. We should learn our lesson from Paul Ehrlich. No, that never happened. He made crazy predictions about not just overpopulation, but environmental stuff and all all, all sorts of other things for decades after no, that. He, he was on 60 Minutes like three months ago. We covered yeah, it on the show. Yeah. So. They never, they never like denounced him for it, and they never learned their lesson from it. And, and we are still told to this day to trust the science. So overpopulation was one of those things. A global cooling was another one of those things. Then it was global warming. Then it was climate change, which is not the same as global warming exactly. Obviously, there's a big difference there. It could be any kind of climactic change now suddenly is the, is the issue. And so we're constantly told in each of these eras, trust the science, trust the science, trust the science. We have to listen to whatever they say. And then when actual scientists come out and say, well, what about the data here? And what about this? And I don't know if we can trust this data that you've been telling us is true. And why are you concealing this other data and, and not, not publishing that anymore? Then they're deniers, they're anti-establishment, they're crazies, and no one should ever listen to them. And this is the pattern again you will not find the right doing this. Like there's not a single example of the right coming out saying, you know, we're just going to, we're going to demand conformity on this issue of science 
And it just so happens that if you do exactly what you tell us, we get all the things we've always wanted anyway. <laughs> and you must do it. And if you don't do it, then we're going to throw you out of all of our institutions. That literally never happens. But it happens on the left all the time. And it's been going on for a half century. And Paul Ehrlich is like is is the classic example of that. Right. The, the poster child. Yeah. So China's one child policy ended up being probably the worst humanitarian crisis of the past 50 years. The timeline of this horrendous policy is covered very well in a pretty recent documentary called One Child Nation. I think we covered that on the show like a year and a half ago. Two the docu- yeah. yeah, right. Probably more. The, uh, the, the doc shows the regime's use of propaganda to encourage people to have fewer kids and to be happy about it. It shows how the government enforced these dictates and just the brutal way in which they did. The population control methods started as voluntary before gradually becoming mandatory across the country. By the early 80s, the regime started using forced abortions and sterilizations to force compliance. The cultural effects were also astonishing. Infanticide and child abandonment exploded across the country because people prioritized having boys as opposed to girls to, you know, further their last name, legacy, all that type of stuff. So the documentary shows just just absolutely gut-wrenching examples of all of this and widespread cases of this happening across the entire country. Just horrifying stuff. Estimates of these cases are all over the place, but some articles I've read suggest possibly 100 million coerced abortions occurred during this one-child policy in China and millions of forced sterilizations just insane like insane numbers that puts anything that we talked about in the eugenics thing to shame but uh jim jim thoughts on overpopulation and china's one child policy um yeah yeah i mean definitely go see that uh see that documentary that uh yeah we talked about on the podcast we could probably maybe we could put the old episode in the show notes uh, it was a very interesting documentary it was very tragic actually and you know listening to all of this, uh, my mind again, just went to your instincts either lead toward freedom or they don't. And if they don't lean toward freedom, if your instincts isn't just to let people live their lives, as long as they're doing you no harm, you will be, you will lean toward totalitarianism. You'll, you'll lean toward tyranny and eventually you'll get a taste for it. Um, If you, if your instincts are are toward freedom, you're not a threat to anybody. If your instincts lean away from freedom, you become increasingly a threat to your fellow man. This is, I, that's the way I kind of think about all of this. And, you know, we talk about the forced sterilizations. I mean, this happened in this country. A hundred years ago, um, there were forced sterilization uh, programs for um, Native Americans, for in- American Indians in this country. There were forced sterilization programs for um, you know, so-called imbeciles and people of mental defects. There, and then to this day, um, it is, I saw a story, wasn't too long ago, that was, that was not stating this critically, but almost celebratory, that people get abortions when they find out that their child has Down syndrome. Um, if you've ever had anybody with Down syndrome in your family, you realize how blessed you are. If you've ever volunteered or worked at a uh, facility that, um, you know, that cares for people with Down syndrome in, in different levels of mental incapacity, there is a scale. Um, you, you realize it's one of the most rewarding 
um, things you can do as a human being. Um, it's, but to the left, to these people, to these eugenicists, to these population control people, those are the ones that are the first to go. And so again, your, your, your instincts are either toward freedom or they're toward tyranny, and then they're toward a monstrous society that is built upon that because it, the, the, there's a momentum, it seems, that is created when you don't think, when you don't value the freedom and autonomy of somebody who isn't you. Um, yeah, just to, so that we don't move on, I want to, before we get away from the China stuff, I I saw this and, um, you know, just kind of building off of what Jim said, I, I, I want to, I was not planning on reading that. It's not very long at all, I promise. Um, but there was a an event recently at Davos, just to illustrate that these ideas are still accepted and tolerated on the left to this day, to the elites that supposedly care so much about all of us, right? Um, there was an event at Davos in June. They call it Summer Davos. And uh, that's not the official name of it. It's called like New Champions or something like that. Happened in June. I believe it was in China. And they had the premier of China, a guy named Li, give a speech at this World Economic Forum event. And the World Economic Forum then published the transcript of the speech on its website. And I'm going to read you one of the things that was said at this. Keep in mind, everything that we just talked about that happened in China, one-child policy, the you know, 100 million potential forced abortions and other horrible things. And this is what they said at, at Davos. Nobody gets up and says this is wrong. Nobody says, oh, no, you can't say that. They invited this guy to come to this event. They highlighted that he said this. And then they didn't even bother to keep the speech off their website. Instead, they promoted the speech. And he said this in the speech. As a responsible major country, China has all along stood firmly on the right side of history and on the side of human progress, okay. holding high the banner of peace development and win-win cooperation. China is committed to building world peace, promoting global development, upholding the international order. And he goes on and on and on to talk about all the wonderful things that they've done to create a moderately prosperous society, which I think is hilarious in all <laughs> respects, in all respects as planned as they planned, they've ended absolute poverty in China once and for all and embarked on a new journey toward building a modern socialist country in all respects. They have all along, all along been on the right side of history. And oh, the I'll side do you of one better. Progress. I'll, I'll do you one better. Uh, because you know you might look at all of the stuff, and and when I when I first started doing the research for this uh, episode, I thought the overpopulation thing was just like an ongoing conversation, and Paul Ehrlich just happened to write a book that kind of coincided with it. It wasn't until I was doing the research that I found that his book essentially launched all of this. So he wasn't just like one of a bunch of people that were talking about this. He was like the guy that originated all of this stuff. And it cascaded across the world. Like I mentioned, all those different countries that were doing this terrible stuff, uh, you know, from from uh, from Mexico to India, uh, you know, the worst case that we're talking about here in China. 
And it's just like, man, like he must feel terrible that his rhetoric was used in this way. Surely, you know, the population control that uh, he was advocating for was just, uh, you know, preference adjustment and making sure people had access to health care and all of that. Not brutal one child policy, uh, you know, enforced by a communist regime in China. He must be losing sleep at night, right? No, that's not the case. So in China, when they finally ended the policy, their one-child policy in 2016, Paul Ehrlich tweeted uh, in response to an article about the, the China ending it, gibbering insanity, the growth forever gang, which is an obvious dig against people that don't want population control. But it just shows that he has absolutely no remorse that his ideas were used uh, for the, the to justify like like I said, potentially 100 million forced abortions and millions of sterilizations across a whole bunch of different countries. And he's and he's he's tweeting. He's tweeting that, you know, that was a bad idea to stop it. Like It's just unbelievable to me. But um, any final words on this this dark chapter of the population control before I move on to the next one? Nope. Move on. Yeah, good. All right. Can't talk about it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I have, this is a, this I have is to a eat later. Show today. <laughs> yeah. uh, so much of Paul Ehrlich's rhetoric spilled over into the environmental realm. This turned into the zero population growth movement of the 70s and 80s. In these years, uh, this was mostly just a public awareness campaign initiated by advocates of the cause. Because of the absolute horror uh, of these periods of history that we already talked about, there hasn't really been a widespread popular movement behind a very specific population control effort over the past couple of decades. But there are still plenty of the people out there pushing this this uh, this type of rhetoric. I think we have a good example of uh, Jane Goodall, who you might also remember from grade school or junior high. She, uh, you know studied chimpanzees and all of that but she's also has some curious ideas about human populations let's go ahead and play that good all clip we cannot hide away from human population growth because you know it underlies so many of the other problems all these things we talk about wouldn't be a problem if there were if there was the size of population that there was 500 years ago yeah so uh you know well, first off, let's point out, especially for those audio-only listeners, that she is sitting on a World Economic Forum stage delivering that quote. So that's yeah. something that we shouldn't just breeze past. But, uh, you know, what, what was the population 500 years ago? Uh, Jim, didn't, didn't you look that up yesterday when we were talking about this? Do you recall off the top of your head? I, I do. The population of the world 500 years ago was about 500 million. That's right. Or about 6% of what it is today. So according to Jane Goodall, the ideal population of the uh, of the world would require shedding 94% of the population. So I wonder who gets to decide who's the one, who's the one in 20 that gets to that gets to survive. Uh, that's a pretty troubling thing. Or we have Bernie Sanders talking during that incredibly embarrassing CNN climate town hall in 2016, which I will never forget agreeing with the need to educate people on the need to curb population growth or those stories of AOC talking about how women have to take climate into account when they're deciding on whether or whether or not to have kids or the report that I always bring up whenever we talk about this topic. Again, I will never forget it. 
by the academics at Georgetown University and John Hopkins University in 2016 titled Population Engineering and the Fight Against Climate Change. In these paper, our academic betters outlined a spectrum of coercion of potential public policies to curb population growth. On the one side of that spectrum, representing the least coercive method, we have uh, healthcare access, which is just abortion. The second uh, point on this, uh, a little bit more coercive, is preference adjustment, which this is basically just propaganda, putting this idea that you're better off just having one or, or fewer kids on billboards and movies and music videos and classroom lesson plans, everything, basically, just to, you know, try to try to adjust the preferences of people without the use of force. Or the more, a uh, little bit more coercive idea of tax incentives to reduce children. If you have too many, uh, you know, more and more kids, you're just going to raise your taxes and all of that. And then the most coercive thing is government mandates, just like China and the one child policy or some of the other things that I had mentioned so far during this podcast, which they are very clear that they do not condone. So they make sure to say that they don't condone those. But that just kind of means that they condone all the other ones. Or the climate emergency letter that grabbed a whole bunch of headlines uh, just a couple of years ago, signed by 11,000 scientists that that uh, you know talked about a climate emergency that was coming, that labeled economic and population growth as, quote, important drivers of increases of CO2 emissions. In that same letter, it says that population still increasing by roughly 80 million people per year, or more than 200,000 people per day, the world population must be stabilized and ideally gradually reduced within a framework that ensures social integrity. So all of these ideas are still out there. They're still being pushed by these same types of academics out there and these thought leaders and these ruling elite types and these, you know, Davos billionaires in the Swiss Alps. Uh, it just doesn't, uh, you know, just doesn't you don't see it too much on, on your daily, you know, TV news stream or anything like that. So Justin, thoughts on this kind of modern day, uh, you know, population control ideas. So I, I know I make this point a lot on the show, but I can't I, I just don't see any uh, any other way around it. If you believe, as so many of these people claim they believe, that we are all going to die from climate change and that the whole world is going to burst into flames, that life cannot be sustained, that in the end, humanity will falter, then almost any potential solution to that seems uh, logical um, no matter how tyrannical it is or awful or bloodthirsty or creepy or whatever, it makes sense because if the alternative is we all die, right? If it's the equivalent of the asteroid hitting the earth and we're all going to die, then anything other than that would be morally preferable to a lot of people like that. Logically, you can understand the logic of that. Right. And that's why that idea that we're all going to die from climate change is so important to debate over, to push back against, et cetera. Because if you don't, then logically almost anything is justifiable. And we saw this play out with COVID because that was exactly how they justified locking people in their homes, telling them that they didn't have free travel anymore, um, eliminating jobs by the millions basically overnight. How did they just printing trillions of dollars that they didn't have? How did they justify that? They justified that by saying, well, lots of people are dying from COVID. So 
we have we can do all these things that we normally agree would be bad, but we have to do them in order to stop that. Except what they're saying about climate change is worse than what happened with COVID. They're saying climate change is going to kill everybody. Nobody said COVID was going to kill everyone, even if they're high, even at, even when fear was at its height. They didn't say every single person was going to die. Life on Earth couldn't be sustained. That's what they're suggesting. When you say that climate change is an existential threat to humanity and to nature, what ex what that means literally is we are all at risk of dying as a result of it. The all of human civilization, all of life, or nearly all, is at risk. And so you can justify anything. And that is and that is why these things are so incredibly dangerous because once you get to the point in time, we've seen this play out a million times throughout history. We talked about a lot of these different groups of people earlier. We talked about Charles Darwin, some of the stuff that came from that. Slavery had a lot of this kind of stuff in it. We're talking the Nazis and eugenics programs, forced sterilization, one-child policy, all these things that happened all over the world in India and elsewhere. All those things were justified by some greater danger. And you, so you can, you can kill people wholesale and that's across all kinds of religions, all kinds of, uh, uh, periods of human history. We're talking about, this is not, this is a human problem. When human beings are convinced that there is some grave danger that's going to wipe us all out. If we don't do X, Y, or Z, then you can, if you are effective at making that argument, you can get people to do all kinds of horrible things that well, they would never otherwise do. Yeah, and another thing, that I brought this up already, but it's just another example of this idea of each additional person that's being born is just another burden on society that's pushing us closer to this idea of mass starvation or ecological collapse. So it's another example of each uh, of people in the minds of these ruling elite types Instead of being assets, they're liabilities. Yeah, and, they and, have to and be just, taken care of. And just one last thing: the we talked about Planet of the Humans before, and we talked about that movie by Mike by Michael Moore produced it. Jeff Gibbs is the director of that, a close ally. These guys are heroes of the left for a long time. Most of that movie is about how renewable energy actually. Uh, windmills and solar panels and, you know, uh, burning wood and stuff like that is not actually going to stop the climate crisis. These That's guys right. believe in the climate crisis, but it's not going to do that. So, but they have to have a solution, right? Otherwise it's, we're all going to die. So what's the solution at the end of the movie? There needs to be fewer people. That's the solution to the movie. That's how they yep. end it. Yeah. You see? So in a bizarre way, the, the like, as as stupid as the windmills and solar panels argument is, I guess it's the one thing keeping the left from getting to the Michael Moore part, right? For now, at least. Yeah, yeah maybe we should back off the whole uh, yeah, wind maybe turbines. we should be in favor of it because, oh my God, what the heck's going to happen if they realize that's not going to work? All right. Yeah, I mean, Sterling Burnett's the head of our climate center, and he's in the chat today. Hello, Sterling. And uh, it's nice to have you there. And he's uh, enjoying, actually, good conversations with our other viewers. But he would be the first to tell you that obviously these solutions won't work. Um, you know, if, if we were even, I think even John Kerry has admitted that if we just stopped, if you could, we can't, we can't do this. But if we, if you could stop all human CO2 emissions other than breathing outward, and though reducing the population reduces a lot of the, uh, the exhaling of humans and CO2 in the atmosphere. But if you were to do all of that, it wouldn't change, it wouldn't change the climate, it wouldn't change the weather 100 years from now, it wouldn't change the weather two years from now, two minutes from now. It wouldn't make any difference at all. Um, and so what, it, it, 
these people on the left, these progressives, these control freaks, they're in a cult. I talk about this all the time. I mean, if you talk about, you know, Mao's, the, the society that Mao made in China, um, and you think about the struggle sessions and the great leap forward and all this stuff, you're able to move an entire society forward like that uh, through two major forces you need to have. Force, by killing everybody who doesn't obey, and indoctrination and basically um, creating a cult. Um, Nazi Germany, cult. In modern environmentalism, it's a cult. You know, the, these people are impervious to, um, to reason, and they're also impervious to appeals to compassion. Like, you can't do this. This is not just taking away my freedom. This is killing people because they have it in their heads. They are actually mentally ill. Let's just say it. They, they actually think that humans are going to destroy the earth, that we are going to kill all of us by our, by the, by our consumption. But going back again, Donnie, to the Paul Ehrlich book, he's been wrong about every prediction his entire life. What is he now in his 90s? You know, and he was just interviewed on 60 Minutes, like, I don't know, six months, eight, six, eight months ago, because he has yet another book full of BS. We're always going to be wrong predictions. But he had predicted, you know, when he, the book came out, you said 1968. He, he was saying, like, by 1980, we were going to have a billion people starve to death. I don't know. I can pull numbers out of the air because they didn't mean anything to him. They shouldn't mean anything to anybody else. But like mass starvation in just a few years, a new ice age is coming. We don't have enough uh, food to feed everybody. What all of these cultists and these, these pessimists don't, uh, don't get is that human ingenuity figures out a way to make it happen. With the technology of the 1960s, you couldn't imagine feeding 8 billion people. Mm -hmm. With the technology of 2023, we can actually feed 10 billion people easily. This planet can support probably 10 billion people, maybe even more. But that's not what the left wants, because if you allow people to just be free and reproduce and populate and innovate and make life better, because life and actually the environment has never been better in modern society. But people don't believe it because the cultists are in control and they are doing all of the messaging and people are actually normal people that should know better are actually convinced of all this garbage. Yeah, so that brings us up to today, but there's actually a new chapter that's starting to be written right now. And this this comes from our friends over at the World Economic Forum. So as discussed in the Dark Future book, the Davos elite are expecting a disruptive wave of new technologies that's gonna change everything about how our societies operate. So Yuval Harari is a futurist guy. He's a historian. He's a World Economic Forum advisor. But uh, he's really the intellectual guru of the Davos elite. His worldview essentially underpins everything about the World Economic Forum and their positions on a whole host of different things. So we have a clip of Yuval Harari talking about how humans may be supplanted by robots and AI. And once that happens, what do we do with them? So go ahead and play that Yuval clip. Now we see the creation of a new massive class of useless people. As computers become better and better in more and more fields, there is a distinct possibility that computers will outperform us in most tasks and will make humans redundant. And then the big political and economic question of the 21st century will be, what do we need humans for? Or at least, what do we need so many humans for? Do you have an answer in the book? Um, at present, the best guess we have is uh, keep them happy with drugs and computer games. <laughs> But this doesn't sound like a very appealing future. 
Mm. So yeah, uh, again, it's it's uh, you know what like humans in in his mind, once robots and AI are able to outperform all of us, what what is the point of having humans? Like they're squarely, if this all comes to fruition, they are squarely in the camp again of being liabilities. You can't possibly be an asset to society if robots and algorithms can do everything better than you can. So what are people going to do if we don't have jobs for them? keep them busy or anything what are they going to do his solution to that or what he throws out there as like the only thing that they can think of at the moment is is, i mean this is just so absurd you'd think i'd be making it up that's why we had to play the clip is to keep them happy with drugs and computer games and when he means computer games he means jacking you into the metaverse right so you can live your life over there probably reduces your carbon footprint and all of that so you're not driving around and and uh you know consuming things outside of virtual reality but that's that's the future now so now we're gonna have to you know we, we talked about like the soviet unions and like uh you know justify your existence it's like well now we're just gonna be having to justify our existence to yuval harari and the technological elite and the davos elite uh over there at the world economic forum this is absolutely bizarre stuff but i think that this is like the you know, we talked about that pivot point of people being assets and turning into liabilities. This is the extreme end of that, where you couldn't possibly be an asset to society. So what are these people going to do with you? Uh, as of now, eh, we'll just keep them happy with with drugs and computer games. Really, really, really sick stuff we've been talking about on this entire podcast. But this might take the cake. So, Justin, thoughts on good old Yuval Harari? Yeah, a lot of this, I think, stems ultimately from, uh, you know, one of the things I've been reading this book called um, God of Liberty. The book is um, is is by a historian. I think his name is uh, Thomas Kidd. And it's about sort of religious views in the era of the of the founding of America. And it talks about the wide swath of views that existed amongst the founding fathers and people of that time. Um, there were everything from, you know, your, your basic deist who really doesn't rejects basically all organized religion, but still believes in the concept of God all the way up to like your devout evangelical Christian type. Right. And, um, and Jews and some other people who are living, uh, in America at that time. Right. But one thing that they all had in common and this is embedded in our founding documents and it's it's in the declaration of independence and elsewhere is this idea that your rights you have rights inherently that you are born with rights and that those rights exist and that government should exist to protect those rights but not they don't have the power the moral power i mean they can kill you and do things to you but morally they don't have the ability to take those rights away That's what inalienable rights means. It means untransferable. You cannot destroy them. You can infringe them, but you can't get rid of them. They exist inherently just by being born into the world. But if you reject all of those concepts, if you reject all of that, and and you don't believe even in a natural sort of uh, uh, rights, you don't believe that even if you reject the concept of God, you just believe you have rights because you were born into the world free and therefore you should have rights for that reason. If you reject all those concepts, which basically everybody, uh, almost all of the elites today do for the most part, reject every version of this. They're not, they don't, they're not really deists that believe in, in, you know, sort of an objective moral standard and objective morality and objective uh, rights. 
They, they don't even believe in natural law. They, they certainly aren't evangelical Christians in many cases or devout Jews or, or even devout Muslims or any of those. Like They reject the concept that rights come from something other yeah. than the government. And because, they re because of that, anything goes. Anything goes. Yep. Nothing's off limits. And, that's, and that fundamentally, our country was based on the idea that people wouldn't believe that. And yet now most people reject that concept and all the people in charge reject or most of them reject that concept. And that fundamentally is the, is the, if we can't fix that part of the problem of just at least accepting that rights come from nature, that you're born free, you know, you don't, that, that at least that, if we can't even get to that point, there's no saving this country because everything else falls down from there. I'm afraid that uh, Yuval Harari is going to end up being the um, Paul Ehrlich of the next like couple of decades. Charles Darwin. He, right. Charles Darwin. He's he, he's the next Charles Darwin. And a right. lot of what he says makes sense in a certain way. But it is. <laughs> but it, if you accept the underlying premise. Right. But exactly. that's the problem. He, right. he and we can't survive as a country like that, not as a free country. Yeah, I mean, no. if you listen, I'll, I'll give Yuval Harari a little bit of credit here that he talks about a whole bunch of different stuff, uh, whether it's this idea that we just talked about. He talks about the the potential for this thing called digital dictatorships, which you could read about if you check out that book, Dark Future. But he's always talks about these things almost as if they're like warnings or something that he's not necessarily advocating for a digital dictatorship or anything like that. Uh, but he's just kind of giving a warning about it. But it's just like, you know, you could see that even with like the Charles Darwin stuff that I read, where it's just like, you know, they're, they're putting this stuff out there as warnings. And then it's these future academics and all of that a little bit down the line that that have that that thought in their head. Like that's what's that's what's uh, um gearing their whole worldview and then they do horrible stuff with it and i'm just wondering what types of terrible stuff they're gonna do with this yuval harari mindset in the coming uh several years but uh, well jim let's let's uh take us home <laughs> well i'll try to be brief i mean um if you use the words useless and people in that order you are not the good guy and that's not something that that actually talk about in the beginning of this that people were applauding when uh, Kamala Harris said that uh, we need to reduce population, either they heard her correctly and applauded for that or they weren't listening. People laughed. People thought that was funny using the words useless people. Right. Um, you're not the good guy. You're perpetuating evil. Um, I would have more respect for Yuval Harari and maybe, and we will have to look for this, but you, if you want to talk about warnings about what will happen in the future when artificial intelligence uh, and technology and computer power um, makes a lot of what humans currently do obsolete to you know what will humanity what will become of humanity at that point when you but when you start using the words like useless people and you don't also say but people have value right again this is this is this mindset and and, and justin had gotten to it that um they think that he, the, these powerful elites at the wef they really do believe that unless you are useful to their controlled socialist society in a way that they deem useful, you are not a person that needs to be in society anymore. So they'll just drug you up or plug you into computer games and keep you out of the way for the progress that they have planned. Um, that is frankly evil. That, that mindset has led to the slaughter of tens, hundreds of millions of people in just the 20th century. And it seems to be taking root again in the, in the elite uh, halls of power in the 21st century.
Absolutely bizarre stuff, man. But this is the fight that we're up against. So uh, so that's why I thought it was a very important, uh, you know, topic to, to go over, dedicate the entire episode to this idea. So uh, I think this is a very important episode. I don't often do this, but you should seriously, like, bookmark this one, share it with people, like, keep this in mind, because I intentionally put a ton of references to a ton of this stuff in in there so it's a little bit of like a, a research doc for you uh to be able to draw any resources from it as, as possible but i do want to thank everyone for joining us this week for the in the tank podcast join us every week for a new episode for those audio only listeners that are catching this on a friday or later why don't you leave a review for us on iTunes? Also, you can catch us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon central time where we are live streaming on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Rumble. And you can join the conversation, leave us a comment or a question. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your question on the fly. You could also follow us on Twitter at In The Tank Pod. If you have any comments or questions for the show, feel free to email us at inthetankpodcast at gmail.com. Hit that like button, leave a comment, subscribe if you haven't already, share this content, all that stuff helps helps break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. Jim Lakely, where can the fine people find you? At Jay Lakely on Twitter, at Heartland Inst on Twitter, and always visit heartland.org. Fantastic. Justin Haskins, same question. At uh, Justin T. Haskins on uh, Twitter and Facebook and all of that stuff. Also, check out Dark Future. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. Uh, the digital version is out. The print version is out. Um, it's a, it's a, it really is an amazing book. We worked really, really hard on it. And I truly do not think you will be disappointed. You are going to learn a ton of information from this book. Uh, I couldn't possibly do it justice in uh, a five minute, 10 minute, 15, 20 minute, 30 minute, you know, discussion about it. It's not possible. It's too long. Um, and too full of information. So check out dark future, uh, wherever books are sold or get it at the library. If you're a loser a communist. goes to the library. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can we get an audio version read by Justin T. Haskins instead of Glenn Beck? That's what I'm waiting for. Uh, you know, you'll be waiting for a while, Jim. You'll be waiting for a while because it takes a long, long time to record. Uh, now, Justin just has to do the footnotes. He just has to read the footnotes. Yeah, I read the footnotes. And, <laughs> and spell out all the URLs. All right. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week.